0: We also are committed to a biblical theology that is recognizing that this is actually one book made up of many parts, written by one spirit, and it all has a significant one intention in it. and That intention is Jesus Christ, the righteous of God. And so when we encounter an Old Testament text like Genesis 14, where we see such a significant Christological intention we have to run the New Testament to see that in of time there. About three years ago, almost exactly three years ago, I preached three sermons on uh, Hebrews chapter 7. About four years ago, we began a study of Hebrews and so my intention today is not to uh, re-preach expositionally everything in Hebrew more Hebrews chapter 7, those three sermons, I went back and looked through them, they were rather dense and lengthy, and I'm going to teach Hebrews 7 in one sermon today. So I commend you to go back for more detail. This is the Christ's note. Uh, we're just going to be hitting it very briefly this morning in chapter 7, but we want to understand where this notizodeth, where this mysterious character, what he has to do with redemption. Let's open this note. Father, I pray that you would help us in your Word today. There is a lot here we will be, to some, I think, like drinking from a fire hose. And yet, this is this is glorious stuff. Hebrews is amazing. Your Spirit, when it presented to the anonymous author, He was making a great need for us to understand the superiority of Jesus. Christ. But we need the patience. We need the heart. We need the mind. Your way today. So I ask that you would calm the nerves, calm the anxieties, of things going on around you this week with a holiday coming up, and that we would be able to spend this time with the kids in that And I say, we're going to do this Genesis chapter 14, which we read and looked at last week. We are introduced to this individual named no, Melchizedek, this king of, uh, of proto-Jerusalem. We are introduced to him in the context of Abram returning from a great victory against the mighty king, petal and his allies, and the rescue of his nephew, Lot. And we, of course, saw last week that he was met by two kings, Abram was, he was met by the king of Sodom and he was met by the king of Salem. And those two kings and their cities are really a metaphor, or I should say a multiple meaning, they have intentionality intention all the Israel but of really heaven and earth, heaven and the world. Sodom representing the earth, the world, the things that will burn and vanish, and Salem representing the peace, the Zion, God's eternal city. And we saw the representation in how Abram expressed by his actions that when you have Solomon, you don't need And he expresses it. But then we, we read about this in and there's only two verses where he appears, and then he seems to disappear from the Pentateuch stories that he's not mentioned again in the next the five books of the Pentateuch. The Genesis doesn't have a and he's right there next to Abram in in Jerusalem, right there north of Hebron, so well, he just disappears. In fact, we don't recognize that his name doesn't come up again until David, the king, writes about him in Psalm 110. And in Psalm 110, when David writes about him, he doesn't really speak at all about Melchizedek and his personage. He doesn't speak at all about Melchizedek and the connection to Abram. He only identifies him as a Christ figure, as a type of Christ. And he speaks of the Messiah who will come after and be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, again, silence. There's nothing else in the Old Testament scripture about Melchizedek. In fact, there is very little, little in the Old Testament about the idea that the Messiah will be a priest sort of not to be brought up and talked about. Most of, but it's very clear because of David's words, the Melchizedek is a type. He is a metaphor. He's an allegory. Whatever word you want to use, he's pointing towards Christ, toward the Messiah. Most Christological, or we would say, Messianic prophecies are expressed and fulfilled in Matthew, Mark, Luke, God, right, in the Gospel, So we learn about Bethlehem, that is foretold. We learn about Isaiah quoted in this stress there. And, but it's very fascinating that this, some of the significant prophecy about the Messiah from Psalm 110 is absent in all four Gospels. There's no the fulfillment of Jesus as a priest like Lucifer did. In fact, we have no new Testament text this speaks of the fulfillment of Jesus as a priest, like Melchizedek, except for the book of Hebrews. And when the author of Hebrews, whoever he was, decides to write about Melchizedek as the prefigure, the foreshadow of Christ, boy, did he write about it. It has been said, and I think accurately, that the doctrinal portion of Hebrews is centered on Melchizedek as a type of Christ. It literally, is all about him. And we just show you this very briefly in the book of Hebrews. So, early on in the book, when he's writing about things, he brings up Melchizedek early on. He brings up verse 4, called um, well, it in chapter 4, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest to has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So, let's hold back our confession. And then chapter 5, verse 6. Psalm 110, and he also says in another place, you, Messiah, are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The then chapter 6, verse 19, he says it again, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul secure sure and steadfast, And we've entered the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And then chapter 7 is all about Jesus as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And chapter 8, 9, 10 are all results of chapter 7. The entire book of Hebrews really kind of centers on and hinges on this Melchizedek. Character that's only mentioned in Psalm 110 and Genesis 14 in 2 verses. So that's quite a significant doctrinal movement from a vague story in the 14th chapter of the Bible. To place where we're going to look at in chapter 7 within Hebrews correctly, I have to do an overview of Hebrews. Right, this would be very Three, trust me. I know that's not very common, but this will be. Hebrews is essentially, the argument of Hebrews, each of the doctrinal portion, Hebrews 1 through 10, before he moves to sort of our response to it in 11 and on. Hebrews opens up with the author saying, Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, is the final Word from heaven. We don't need anyone or anything else we when you have Jesus. A very bold statement to be making to the Hebrew audience. And so then he says, let me give you an two examples. Angels. Angels. Amazing things those angels are. According to Hebrew tradition, they oversaw the giving of the law. outside. Sinai. Angels. Are the servants of the Son? Jesus is the Son. Jesus is better than angels, Pure angels. Moses, who was the giver of the law, you can listen to him. He's important, but he is simply the servant. Jesus is the Son, and who has superiority in the household of God. The servant of the Son. The Son has superiority over the servant. Hear Jesus more than you hear Moses. So Jesus, a Moses, and angels, and Jesus is superior to them. That's in chapters one through four of Hebrews. There was other stuff in there, like I said, there's a brief overview. But then he moves in chapters five through ten to take aim not at angels and Moses. So the connection is very clear that they were overseers, that they were involved in the giving of the law. Mosaic Law, the Old Covenant, and now he takes aim at the law itself—that Jesus is better than the Old Covenant Law—and he does this in a very interesting fashion. He's writing to a very Hebrew audience, and he wants them to understand, according to their own way of thinking about the Old Testament, the Law, how Jesus is superior. Jesus is Christ is superior. So what he does is he takes the aim at the priesthood. He takes aim at Aaron. Moses' brother, remember the first high priest, Aaron's son, goes back there takes aim at the tribe of Levi where Aaron comes and takes aim at them to so show that Jesus is superior to the Levitical priesthood. Now, why this matters, why he targets this, and he gives an entire chapter 7 speaking of this location Jesus and the Aaronic priest and all that sort of stuff, is because the entirety of the old covenant law rests or centers around the priesthood, the Levitical priest, the high priest. The literary center of the Pentateuch is Leviticus. The Pentateuch kind of comes to, come to a point at Sinai, specifically Leviticus. The Taukanamets are wonderful. They are fantastic. But you see, they're not the nerve center of the old covenant law. The nerve center, the brain, is the Levitical system and the sacrifices. Why? Ten Commandments are good, but you can't keep them. The more you have the Ten Commandments, the more you read them, the more you recognize how far away you are from God. And so the priests were sort of this placeholder, and the priest was as a placeholder that said, but here's a mediation for you. Here's a way for you to go near to God, even though you can't keep the law. Go through my priest. Go through the priest who will then minister in the sanctuary. With sacrifices of vicarious sacrifices of animals and blood will be shed. Go that way. So Leviticus and the Levitical system is the nerve center of the Jewish law of the Mosaic law. So by taking aim at the priest, he takes aim at the entirety of the Mosaic law. In essence, this way: If I prove to you that Levitical priest Aaron and all of his kind are inferior to Jesus. Then I prove to you that the entire law is inferior to Jesus, and that's exactly what He does in eight through ten. Because after taking on twenty-eight verses to prove and show to the Hebrew people, in Hebrew, the Hebrew church that, that Jesus is superior, because He's superior High Priest, He then says, "And thus He superior covenant, and He superior ministry." And a superior sanctuary, and a superior sacrifice, and a superior blood. And that's what he does from 8 through 10. So, really, 7, 8, 9, 10, the vital, massive portion of Hebrews, the main thing, the biggest part, is proving to the Hebrew way of thinking that the Levitical law, the priests, and everything you hope to gain in your marriage to God is insufficient. But don't worry. Jesus is sufficient to bring the God. That's the point of Hebrews. There. I guess I could have taken those several years to preach the book and just said that. Um, but there's a lot of really amazing stuff you want know to dive into. But I just needed to give this Hebrews 1% in a nutshell because we need to see what he's doing with Melchizedek and Jesus in chapter 7. Because this, this, this is all the, the kind of the nerve center, then dethroning the Aaronic priest. It's central to his entire argument, right? Showing that Jesus is the superior priest is the premise of all premises. So, that's what he does in chapter 7, using the mysterious figure of and David's quote, David's prophecy in Psalm 110. All right, all that sort of introductory. Let's jump into chapter 7, and I'm going to give you the Christmas version of chapter 7, work through the argument and then gives what I believe are some very encouraging truths at the end of chapter 7. The first thing that the author of Hebrews wants to set for us is that Melchizedek was an obvious type of Christ. First, you have to prove that Melchizedek was a type of Christ, or a picture of Christ. What is a type? A type in the Old Testament is an image, a foreshadowing, a someone or something in the past, that in some way uh, intentionally instructs specifically about the Messiah, the Christ. We read about how David was a type of Christ in his royal authority. We read about how Moses was a type of Christ in his speaking um, and giving God's law. We read many of those things about the type of Christ. To say that something was a type of Christ or a Allegory or metaphor—I suppose I those are not the same words, but just for ease of understanding—is uh, not to say that everything about that historical individual is exactly identical to the Christ. Adam was also described as a type of Christ in what Adam didn't do, and so to say that is not the case, something about it. And, and the author of Hebrews and David is saying specifically on the subject is his priesthood. That's what we want to look at. But you understand, if you were sitting there, the Hebrew author, he would be going, you guys get it, right? That Matthew's Jacob with the head of Christ. I mean, how could you not get it? He says, look at his name. to represent God as a perfect priest. But every priest, even Levi and Aaron and our sons, including the Christians, had to come from among men. Had to be a human. Well, so, what well, that's Jesus. Could have been a human there, and then he be But then you have a problem with the incarnation. Because now we have two incarnations. That's where two virgin births, He's stable, he means, I mean, we, we don't have the idea that Jesus was born, the Son of God was born or came into human existence before he came into human existence. It actually, really, I think, does great damage to the concept of Christmas through the incarnation. That's a the theological reason. But the contextual reason why I don't think this is somehow referring that Jesus came early as Melchizedek no is, as a human, is the context, the words, every time the it's this, because is used in reference to Jesus Christ, reference to Christ, the words like, as, or after the order of is used. Never once does the text say, the kisadik is Jesus, or Jesus is, or was, or anything like that. It's like, after the order of. And that's important. Those are very clear markers in language. And what we're looking at is we're looking at something that figures, that shadows, that is like this. There's more reasons, and I'd be glad to go offline with you some other time and discuss why, but this Mephibosh is a real guy who lives in a real time who's intended to foreshadow or picture Christ as a high priest. Contextually, in chapter 7, then, what has been this mean? without father, without mother, without genealogy, in the beginning, the days, nor end of life. Look at the rest of verse 3 but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. That without father, father, without mother, without genealogy, without parents, all that stuff, it's not about his essence and his existence, it's about his priesthood. He's a priest without genealogy. He's a priest without record of his of current his parenthood, which is really important to the Hebrew people because that was a big issue as related to Levitical and Aaronic priests. They had their genealogy, right? To make sure that their priest was according to the right genealogy. And so the author of Hebrews is contrast and this like Melchizedek, he shows up out of nowhere as a priest. You couldn't have predicted him as a priest. We couldn't predict Melchizedek as a priest of the Most High God. And you can't predict Jesus as a priest of the Most High God, except for the prophecy. But you can't predict it. He didn't have. He didn't have parents that were priests. That's what that is talking about in there. It's not talking about an essence, but talking about his preacher. Side note. Some people that use that to say, well, this is well, because it was Jesus. I would say, well, I think the scripture would go a great length to tell us about Jesus' Jesus's genealogy. And did he have a father? Heavenly father? And didn't he have a mother? <laughs> like, this is not proving that. It's proving the priesthood is without connection. But that's important to the rest of the argument because the whole point is he's not a priest like. Right? Reba, not a priest like Aaron, but a priest like Melchizedek. So the first thing is, he's an obvious type of Christ. The second part of the argument is this and Melchizedek were clearly superior to Abraham. This is in verses 4 through 7. What do we mean he was superior to Abraham? Well, there's two reasons he brings up. First of all, when Abram meets him, or he meets Abram after the battle, who blesses whom? The Kuchedek blesses Abraham, Chapter 7, verse 7 of Hebrews. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. The first argument here, Melchizedek comes out, and this is, this is really kind of cool. He blesses the patriarch with a patriarchal blessing. That's what that blessing is there. It's not that idea of just praising or giving him a gift. He did that as well. But it's like, you no, know, he gives the patriarchal blessing to the patriarch. So, he's the patriarch of the patriarchs. <laughs> he's the first of the first. He blesses, and the latter is inferior to the former. The blesser is superior. But the second argument he gives. Is regarding Abram's reaction. What does Abram do with Melchizedek? Well, our text tells us. Now consider, verse sure, four, how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham—the only time in Hebrew used to be titled patriarch—just trying to draw a, a, a correlation or comparison. Even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. we talked about that last week. Abram responds by tithing to Melchizedek. No now this again is a Hebrew book for Hebrew people. We have to understand the Hebrew argument. To understand that a tithe according to Hebrew law was not a gift given, was not a free will offering, was not something you gave because you were feeling rather generous. A tithe was an obligatory payment commanded by the law of God. In other words, the reason why a tithe was given is not just because Abram said to Melchizedek, Hey, why don't you take some of this stuff? I don't need it all. He was saying, Oh, it's the priest of the Most High God. I am obligated to him. Proving that Abraham understood that he was inferior to Melchizedek. He gave a tithe of all the soil. So these two reasons, because Melchizedek blesses Abraham and Abraham gives a tithe, obligates himself, to Melchizedek, is the author of Hebrews' reason why we should not only see that Melchizedek is a type of Christ, but also in the story, see that Abraham is instinctively inferior in rank, he you into that. Maybe it's right above him. And since you know the book of Hebrews, you can already see sort of where are the argument's heading, right? That's the next part of the argument. In verses uh, 8 on down through 10. This is an argument called the seminal argument. It's simply this. So, Abraham had a son, right? Isaac. And more than that, but he had Isaac. And then Isaac had a couple of sons, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, had 12 sons, right? One of those sons was a guy named Levi. And Levi had some sons, and one of those sons was a guy named Aaron. And Aaron had some sons, possibly and so on and so on. And yet, ironic, priesthood derived from what Levites were the priests for God's people, the high priests. So, the argument—if you look at the text in verses eight through ten—the argument he's making is this: that Levi, then, so to speak, who is by the law of God supposed to receive the tithes from his brothers as the priesthood tribe, actually paid tithes. To Melchizedek through Abraham, his father. He was, this argument. He was in the loins of his father at the time. Therefore, when Abraham paid the tithes to Melchizedek, All of his descendants paid the tithes to Melchizedek. Therefore, Levi and Aaron and the other priests, they paid the tithes to Melchizedek. And so his argument is, if Abraham is inferior to Melchizedek, then all of Abraham's sons are inferior to Melchizedek, including Levi, including Aaron, including all your priests. Do you get what he's actually saying here? He's saying this to the Hebrew people who are holding on to their priests. He's saying, guess what? Your priests need a priest. And Abraham saw that. So they're not good enough. I mean, who do you want to go to? The priest who is next to God, or the priest who is the priest to be next to God? That's the idea. Abraham's rabbinical priestly sons were his fear gets moved to the next thing. And that is the first section in Hebrews chapter 7. Now, I would like to say that it gets easier from here on out. It doesn't. We talked about this when I preached to the book of Hebrews. The, the Eastern Hebrew mind, it love to take a journey through the countryside. Whereas we like to take it straight from point A to point B. And so they wander around and get to the point, And that's sort of what happens in verses 11 through 19, the next section. He wanders around here. Um, and it's a beautiful argument, but it's not one that we have time for today. But essentially what he does in 11 through 19 is he basically now makes the point. Therefore, if Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, then Jesus is superior to the Levitical priests who are, who are inferior to Melchizedek. Like if, if you have this stream of priests that comes through Abraham and Levi and Aaron, and then you have this stream of priests, and really it's just like all empty space, but there's like one priest, Melchizedek, and then thousands of years later, there's another one, Jesus. But if these priests, all these Levitical priests throughout history proved over and over and over again that they were inferior to this line, then the next one in this line is also superior to this line. Then the new high priest, the one at the door of Melchizedek, is superior to every other Jewish. That's his argument in 11 through 19. And part of the windy way he takes through this, he says, but that's strange, because Jesus, we know the Messiah, and Jesus is evidence of the Messiah, we, we know that he didn't come through the tribe of Levi. And we know that there's never a priest supposed to ride, ride, ride out of the tribe of Levi, and even you know Aaron's the one that's supposed to do that. We know that the Messiah comes out of the tribe of Judah. And so we have a problem here, and the whole argument about that here is we actually going not have a problem, you have a solution. Because now, Jesus, the Messiah, can be both priest and king like Melchizedek was. He's king according to the tribe of Judah, he's priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And, and here's the fascinating part, not only are these priests inferior, and your system inferior, your covenant, your ministry, your sacrifice, your blood, like all that inferior, but this order of freedom is falling down. And it goes before there was even a Jewish people. So this priest from the side of Judah, because he's after the order of Melchizedek, this Jesus, guess what? He's not just a priest for Jewish people. He's a priest for all people of every kindred, side, tongue, people, and nation. It relates all this. So after the fact that he doesn't come through Levi is not a problem, it's a solution. For all the people, the Gentile too can come and have a priest before God. And as he works in this argument, he really gives two reasons as to why two reasons as to why we should believe that Jesus is this priest after the order of Melchizedek. Two reasons. The first reason and this is 15 through 17 where he really makes the an argument. And kind a of wind around the he hits down. The first reason is, first of all, was Jesus the Christ? The first question to Okay, well, yes. yes. But let's try to prove it. Where would you go to to prove that Jesus was the Christ? Well, we could probably go to the old words of Jesus, right? That would be a very good place to go. Became to be the Son of God. We could probably go to the miracles of Jesus. That's what the gospel miracles are for, to prove to us that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ, the promised Messiah. We could probably go to the eyewitness testimony, his baptism, the Spirit of God descending on him, the voice. There's so many things we could go to. I don't know if it's because the author of Hebrews didn't have time, but he only hits one point. He says it in verse 15. Verse the 15 and if you get far more evidence, so he's saying this is the evidence, if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest, who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. We you know where the author of Hebrews goes to prove, first of all, that Jesus is the Messiah, thus the priest of Melchizedek. We should probably look for somebody who has an endless life. We should probably look for somebody who couldn't just raise other people from the dead, but himself was raised from the dead. We should probably look for somebody who beat death to a pulp. Is not Jesus Jesus? Is not Jesus the one evidently portrayed? in the Scripture, as the one with the power of endless life? Did not Jesus say over and over again in the book of John, I came to give eternal life? Did he not constantly point to life, eternal life, and then he himself died, but then he proved that his promises were not empty and void, and he then chose? He has the power of an endless life. That's the first part, part A of the argument, the argument. And then he quickly, in verse 17, now then quotes Psalm 110. So, where he testifies, you are a priest forever, according to the order of I Melchizedek. Mean, it's just a simple argument. It's this David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, testified that the Messiah would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. The one who has the power of endless life is the Messiah. Therefore, and Jesus we know has the power of endless life, therefore, according to the prophecy of Scripture, according to David, Jesus is the priest, he's the Messiah, he's the priest after the order of Melchizedek. That's the argument. kind of of convoluted to get to that main little point. But it simply this: Yeah, so? We do the priest after the covenant, guess what? He came, he lived, he died, he rose again, he ascended, you have one. he had one. He's here. He did. That's the point. So two reasons why you should believe that Jesus is the superior priest to the law. One, Jesus Christ, the power and life. Two, God said so. That's the thing. Psalm 110, God said so. The Bible said so. I do like how the author of Hebrews, writing to a Hebrew people with convoluted, sometimes complex arguments, often tells the book of Hebrews simply settles down on what's written. Because it's said so. That's <laughs> You should hear God's word. That's what right he does here. This whole point in verses 18 through 19 when he ends this section is, doesn't that you a better hope? Aren't you glad that we don't you know, need a mediator through the traces of genealogy through Aaron and Levi and all that sort of stuff. He says in 18, for on the one hand, then there's an annuling of the him we can't it. Because it is this weakness and unprophetamine. He says, so, so, what, what, why would you hold on to the old law? How would you hold on to those priests when you have Jesus as a priest? For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing of a better hope. Your rich we you now draw near to God. You can now draw near to God. You don't have to go offer a sacrifice and make sure that that priest who was doing it was really, truly of Aaron and Levi and was there and they could change You don't have to do all that because you have priests who outside and better than all of us I so how does all this matter? This is the end of chapter 7, the last verses 20 through 28, and then it has implications through chapter 8, 9, 10. Why it matters. First, a superior priest means a superior covenant. Remember how the law, the Mosaic law, is completely structured on the priesthood of the Levites? Remember everything is based on that? I, when we looked at our overview of the Pentateuch several months back, we noticed how the five books of the law all point toward Leviticus, and particularly point toward Sinai, and what happened on Sinai, the giving of the law, we always focus on the Ten Commandments, because you we know the bulk is the, how to build the temple, make sure you use the sacrifice, all oh, that's stuff's a bolt the law. That was the sort of mediation. Lord, forgive them, they brought their blood as a sign that they believed. That's nice. But what about this? What about Jesus as a priest who says, Father, forgive them because I offered my blood as a sign of my faithfulness. Isn't that better? Isn't the faithfulness of Jesus better than your faith? The faithfulness of Jesus can never fade. My faith latches and reigns. And so the old covenant said this, Do these things so that you might live. But the new covenant says, It is done, now live. Better priests, better covenant, a guarantee that you have that's the first argument that it's made. The second argument. An irrevocable high priest means an irrevocable forgiveness. Look at the text. Verse 23. Also, not only a better covenant, but also, there were many priests... Okay, usually you would think, oh, that's a good thing. There were many priests. you think that's a bad thing that there were many priests. Why is that a bad thing? Why were there many priests? Because they were prevented or preceded by death from continuing. They could not continue being a priest because they kept dying. The reason why there are so many priests is they just couldn't do this endless life thing. But he, but Jesus, he see, he continues forever. Oh, well, he died, but he rose right. again the third day. He continues forever, and so he has an unchangeable priesthood. This word "unchangeable" in the Greek there—it's it, a rare word. It's only used here in the New Testament. No, nope, nowhere else in the New Testament. And you have to go searching a little bit to find out if meaning, its that's the meaning. And in, in some of the places you search, searching in classical literature, and what you find is another word could be said that it means the same thing. It doesn't mean unchangeable in the sense that it doesn't move or shift. Oh, it doesn't, that's not the point. The word there is also irrevocable. It doesn't get transferred to someone else. See, when Aaron died, the priest Preachers changed change from Aaron to Hathi and Simeon. And when they died, it changed to their son. But because Jesus died and lives forever, it never changes hands. You know, there are things that God has given us to do. It's amazing. He talks about it in the creation. God shares his authority and dominion with man to govern this world. Isn't that an amazing thing in Genesis 1? He delegates. His word he delegated to come through faithful prophets. He even delegates the immediate, visible shepherding of his people to fallible people. But there are some things that God doesn't delegate to anyone else, that he doesn't share his responsibility with. And Jesus does not delegate mediation for you. He represents you personally. He doesn't send someone for you. He is the one for you. His priesthood is irrevocable, unchanging. And you know what that means? That you have an irrevocable, unchanging forgiveness. You know why it is that the Scripture says that our sins and our iniquities you will remember no more? It's because you have a representative who is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high who is mediating the blood that was shed 2,000 years ago day and night for you. That's why your forgiveness will never go away. That's why you can't lose your salvation because you never got it in the first place by anything you did. It's because of the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ. It's irrevocable. He never got it. Therefore, because he's irrevocable, he is able to save to the uttermost. So that is completely those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. First, you have a superior priest, that is the superior covenant, better hope, guaranteed done, you have an irrevocable high priest and you have an irrevocable forgiveness. And thirdly, you have a sinless high priest who actually have an effective pardon. But such a high priest was sitting for us who was holy, unless they innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, higher than that. See the argument here? Another problem with these priests not only did they keep dying on everybody, but they kept sinning too. That was a problem, right? we could read all the Old Testament stories and see that got worse and worse. But he makes the argument in this chapter not just that they got worse and particularly, but the very essence of their sacrificial system demonstrated that they were sin They were, they were sinful. Because what did they have to do before they could offer a sacrifice for the people? that's had to have one for themselves even in the famous the famous day of the time at Yom Kippur the priest says the, the most important sacrifice he he away his hands on um, the goat symbolizing the transfer of his guilt he had guilt but 27 says Jesus does not need David as so well. high priest to offer sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people for this he did once for all when he offered up himself because Jesus, not only is the perfect priest, but the sinless priest, He offers Himself instead of an animal. And because He offers a sinless sacrifice, a sinless redemption. It actually works. One of the most devastating and frustrating things about religion is that it causes people to sit in their wheels, looking for a vicar, a priest, uh, a bishop, of somebody, right? And then you come to the end of your life and you wonder, but was it enough? Did it work? Was it effective? The author of says that if you come to God through Jesus Christ, you can be confident it was effective 2,000 years ago. Somebody might ask me, when did you get saved? When were you redeemed? And the proper response would be 2,000 years ago. My sins were nailed to the cross. And I'll bear them no more. In this high priest, is an effective target. So, what I like about the author Hebrews here at the end is he then says, in verse chapter 8, which we didn't read, now this is the main point. Look at orders. this is the main point, and this is the main point. Right? We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And what is He doing? Well, this is chapter 8, 9, and 10. What is He doing? Well, He's ministering, pleading His blood for you. In the perfect sanctuary of God. Not the one on earth. With the perfect sacrifice made 2,000 years ago with the innocent blood of the Son of God. And that's actually the argument of 8, 9, and 10. is better ministry, better tabernacle, better sanctuary, better covenant um, better sacrifices better joy so what's the solution what do we do you're our priest if you get the right hand of Matthew